Hello, this is Catherine, and you're listening to Friendly Anarchism. Uh, today I have Eileen Cummings with me. She's a lovely, lovely woman from my meeting. So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes. Um, as Catherine said, I'm Eileen, Eileen McMahon Cummings. Um, I've been in Eugene for about six years. I, uh, I started out in New Jersey and then lived a very long time in San Francisco, California. And that's where I really um, prospered, was in San Francisco. And if you can't prosper in San Francisco, you can't prosper anywhere. Because there's all kinds of wonderful permission and creativity and, you know, the expression everywhere. So mm -hmm. I, um, you know, I treasure that part. Of my of my journey, and that's where I also got my Doctor of Ministry degree. That was in Oakland, right over the bridge from San Francisco, with Matthew Fox, and he, you know, was um, a Dominican priest for thirty four years, and then one day he decided he had enough, and he went out as a lecturer and teacher. And he's written more than 30 books. And uh, learning from him absolutely changed my life because while I always thought we were one, there was one of us, I knew after that degree that's absolutely so. And there, there's one of us, and I'm including the animal kingdom mm -hmm. in that. And it's been... Uh, a very good philosophy. It's more than a philosophy, but it's given life meaning to me. Particularly as I get older, I'm 86, and um, the, the truth is I have maybe 10 years, if I'm lucky, and I have very good health, but you know, one never knows. And so how I live this next 10 years is something I'm investigating now so that my family or... Um, people that I interface with will know I was here, mm -hmm. that I've made a difference in people's lives. You have. You've made a difference in my life. Really? You, yeah, you have some of the most beautiful vocal ministries. Really? Yeah, <laughs> it's like really the one um, about your father, mm. picking it up and then putting it down again. That one I think about a lot. Really? That's, yeah. Yeah, that's very good advice, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah, my mother spent... Um, almost 30 years in a mental institution and he visited her every Sunday without fail and he would go into the visitor's parking lot and it was really a very dismal terrible place like something out of a movie with all red brick buildings and dirty windows and it was it was de very depressing and he would listen to my mother talk to her uh, whatever kind of mood she was in, he would, you know, interface with that mood, and then he would leave her off in the ward at five. He would pick it up at one, and he'd put it down at five. And then the next Sunday, he'd go into the ward again, and he'd pick it up at one, and then he'd drive home at five and put it down. And um, my father is my role model. That's one of the things he taught me. I've heard you speak about him mm. before. Mm. Yeah. Um, it sounds hard to have your mother. In a, was that for your whole childhood? Well, no, I was, I was an only child for eight years, and she was just marvelous. And 
she raised me to think that the whole world existed because I existed, <laughs> which is every kid should be taught that, uh -huh. that because of me, the world was created. And uh, then when I was eight, she had, uh, she came down with encephalitis oh. and miraculously lived, but she was left with epileptic seizures. And because she had so many seizures, um, it, it altered her personality mm. and she had to be committed my father put that off for years and years. He felt desperate about it, but mm. it, it, she wasn't safe around her own self yeah. as well as not safe with anybody else. But, you know, my father handled that as well as he could. Uh, he had the gift of human understanding, and I learned that from him. So it's no, no coincidence I've made my living listening to people. <laughs> you know, there's nothing I can't even understand no matter what, no matter what, because we're all the magical child at the end of the day underneath all our discretions and mistakes and crimes. Um, everyone, everyone in prison is a magical child, and things just went terribly terribly wrong for them and they committed terrible crimes and they need to be you know they they can't be within society because some of these things can't be rectified in those personalities but uh, who they are really in their being is um, the, the beauty and you know I would say that our incarceral state are um, most if very, very few people, I think, in there deserve to be in there. I don't think, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I feel like we shouldn't really even have prisons. Um, and there are, but especially how it is set up right now is people are in there for no reason, no good reason at all. And basically 70% of people in jail right now are just there because they can't pay bail. And like, um, it's it's become this place where you send people so that you can get cheap labor to make your profit off of people, you know, using the prison labor to not having to pay well, labor. Well, and, and I agree with you, and I agree yeah. with you, and there's so many young people, and, you know, they just got a, a just a hard start, and they made a mistake. You know, they robbed the local 7-Eleven or something, and they're, they're paying far too much these mistakes and yeah. they haven't had guidance they're certainly not going to get it in prison I um I met an amazing young man he was um let's see 20 years old he got thrown in prison when he was 16 for graffiti but oh, he was no. a brilliant artist you oh. saw what he had painted it just just gorgeous and um you know he he came out with a prison record, and then you can't get a job, and like you're marked yeah, for life. Like, right. right. And it's just like he, brilliant artist, sixteen year old kid, just sort of thrown to the wolves. Right. You know. Right. Really, and that that story is not uncommon. Unfortunately, you know? that story is not uncommon. Yeah. Yes. A lot of Quakers do prison work. Mm-hmm. What do you think the connection is? there? Well, I think that Quakers, um, one of the things they have, they have a deep capacity to listen. They have a deep capacity for silence <laughs> and not to fill everything up. 
mm-hmm. and 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 they also um, love their fellow man, and that's just ingrained in Quakerism, mm-hmm. and that's why they've always you know done good works. And I love being a Quaker. I, I I didn't become a Quaker until I was in my forties. Really? Yeah, and I. I went to college when I was 37, and I had five little kids at home. Wow, you have five kids? Yeah, five children, three (laughs) daughters, and two sons. (laughs) So, um, our granddaughter's your age. Um, And I had this wonderful literature professor, and he was just an outstanding man. And I went to his office one day, and I just had to know more about him. How did he get this way? And it turned out he was a Quaker. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come to a meeting? This was in Barnegat, New Jersey. And I went. And my mother had died the week before. So I went down. And this meeting house was just something out of a movie. It was small, all white, uh, windows down to the floor, and um, oh, it was so perfect because it was so empty. It was so empty. And I sat in the pew, and of course no one is speaking, and I'm just, I just said, my mother just died. And I wept a little and sat there for the hour. And after I was finished, I didn't have everybody rushing up to me to say, oh, I'm so sorry your mother died. One person said, I'm very sorry for your loss. One person out of the 40 people that were there. And you see, that's the, they let you be, and they acknowledge your humanness and your pain and, and your desperation and, and let it go. And I love that. I love that part. Yeah. I was, I had... A very emotional experience, you know, you saw when I first came to meeting. I, something similar to that is like, just like people just taking it in and listening without judgment and without trying to offer anything back or, you know, and it was just sort of shocking. Yes. To not have everybody be try like, oh, you. no, like, try and That's fix right. you. Like, You're not okay. Like, yeah. oh, I want to make you okay. Like, yeah. how do I, oh, what do I do? Like, da, da, da. It's like, just nothing. Just people just, just listen. And it was inc- insanely relaxing. I think especially as kind of an introvert, it's nice to not have people just sort of, like, right. rush you. I mean, I've been sitting there in the Quaker meeting for six years here. And I don't. I don't know people, and I've been sitting right next to them <laughs> across the room from them, and I don't know if they're married. They have children. I, I don't know any of that, and it, I don't have no, any inclination to find out nor <laughs> them about me. I just know we're all worshiping together, and that's the way we're doing it. We're doing it just sitting in silence, and it's wonderful to have that today. There's so much noise. Oh, there's so much noise. Oh, just, um, and everybody has this, everybody in the room, in the meeting room, knows all of this. Nobody talks about it, feels inclined to talk about it. You just sit there, and it's very freeing. And I find that when I sit down, 
I have some many creative thoughts come to me that because there's space um, that's it's a great energy we should transport that all over the world <laughs> to Washington DC particularly <laughs> man just the idea of giving space like having space for quiet yes having space for emotional stuff without like not trying to fix everything all yes. the time that's so hard but yes. it feels like so much is wrong and so much is going wrong just to like take space to let things just be as they are can mm -hmm. feel really hard and that seems to be like the first part of my meeting experience generally is like because it's an hour and it's sort of like a spiritual journey at the beginning it's like in my brain I'm just fixing everything fixing everything decide like figuring out what to do next and all the running through my to-do lists and all these things and but then eventually it just sort of like calms and there's just sort of this still and then I realize I always have to come back. I always remember that it's like right. actually that's the most important thing I do. Yes. You know, is be Yo. is not do. You know, yes. is and like yes. And it's it's a it seems like totally backwards. Like from what we're taught in society versus what I found to be true through like my Quaker worship. Like you're saying, it's like there's people in the room that you have no idea anything about them or who they are, and generally we're taught that that means that like community is weak. You know, like you, like that means that we're not that. You know, people aren't talking to like all these things, but it's like, but you're still joined by experience, and it's okay to not have to know everything about everybody, and that's that is really relaxing. I feel and like we're we're supposed to just be open about everything all the time. That's true. We're encouraged to do that, aren't we? And to have some kind of sound going on, and from something. Um, and this is just allowing it, it's the well in my opinion it's the ultimate meeting M-E-E-T-I-N-G now it's called a meeting but it is meeting God or meeting the silence or you know uh, Matthew Fox my teacher said all life is about meeting and I find that to be true it's you and I we're meeting mm -hmm. over this precious hour about things that are important. And to, to live that way, I mean, that's a very wonderful goal to the person in the supermarket at the cashier. We don't know her or him. And just meet them as travelers on the path, you know. So this might sound all over grandiose, but it's not. It is not grandiose. It's very real. It's funny, um, a piece of wisdom that I've taken with me, which was given to me by somebody I think is just vile, that I worked with, <laughs> he was terrible, he was, you know, just harassing me, and just an awful person, but mm -hmm. then he said one day that um, whenever, whoever you meet, wherever you meet them, somehow you ended up in the same place at the same time. So like, mm -hmm. like how, whatever your story is, or whatever it is, it's like at this moment, we ended up right here in the same experience, yeah. and it's like so. And it's like that is very. That's profound. That's yeah, very that profound. That is very profound. <laughs> yes. I was not expecting that from him. See, so you did. You, while you had your these other agendas, here was a really wise person, and you're giving him, you're giving him credit for that. 
And maybe he didn't display that in other areas of his life. But somewhere in him, he had this belief. Yeah. yeah. Life is not easy. Um, somebody, I don't know where I was. Somebody said, um, I don't even know this person, but they said, you know, life is, um, life is so wonderful. And of course, life is wonderful. I mean, it's miraculous. Plants grow and the bugs thrive and all of that. And also, life is difficult. I remember when I read The Road Less Travel by Scott Peck, and his first sentence was, life is difficult. And it's the first time I ever saw written that just life, three words, and they were the first words in the book. And I thought, boy, you have got me. I, you know, I'm your reader. <laughs> and he was wise. He was a psychiatrist. And we're always meeting something, meeting our truth, you know, me meeting what drives us crazy, um, meeting our friends. We talk about we want to meet our b best boyfriend. We want to, you know, meet our husband. You know, we, we, think about how many times we say, I want to meet this. So life is about meeting. And to be prepared for that is it's a pretty wise person that can do that. I think a lot about the idea of that I've learned in our meeting about um, meeting people where they're at mm -hmm. and then meeting yourself where you're at. Yes. And that sort of changed the way I interact with people, you know, because it's so easy to forget that people are on their own paths and where, or like, it can be really hard, especially when sort of doing community organizing and working people or talking to people that I really don't agree with on things. It's like, it's been really helpful to have that idea mm. of like, well, it doesn't really matter where they should be right now because you have to meet them where they're at. Yes. And if you don't do that first, if you don't meet somebody where they're at first, then it, you're never, you don't get anywhere you anyway. You don't go anywhere. It, no. It doesn't go anyway. anywhere. Yeah. Right. So. You know, I've been, um, I'm going to be giving a, a forgiveness workshop in uh, September at the Meeting House, and it's gonna be three hours, two consecutive Sundays, and the, and the community is welcome to come as well. And so I've been, you know, it's two months away, but I've been looking at my books on forgiveness, and, and um, it is, talk about meeting. That is the most wonderful meeting of all, being able to forgive someone, and mostly, to forgive ourselves. I mean, this is the big... Sometimes it's easier to forgive somebody else. But it's not always easy to forgive ourselves. And this is the biggest one, I think. Um, it's about self-love. It's about courage. It, it's about wanting to let go. It's about the impermanence of life. And uh, to meet oneself fully. Yeah. So that's the big meeting, to forgive. So I think people have a hard time forgiving themselves. They can, we can forgive others a lot easier than we can forgive ourselves. And we, we really need to look at that a lot. 
It's hard to, when you have to, like, look at your own failures, you know, and also sort of the failures of the world and how you fit into them, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I've been wondering lately, like, how, what do you do when you're failing? Like, when you lose, if you're going to lose, you know? I mean, the question comes up, like, sometimes things don't always go well. Sometimes well, social revolutions don't end nicely. No, and sometimes, you know, no. the work that we're doing is hard. And yes. it, it's, like, it's important for me to kind of... Tr- like, try and figure out, like, what do you do in the worst-case scenario, you know? But that's hard to look at, and I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I think of a prisoners. Some, somebody, you know, who stole something in a the local 7-Eleven and went to jail for four years or what? Just, that's hypothetical. And they have to, you know, they're exposed now to all kinds of violent people and and they're young and it's hard to process and it's they need to hear about forgiving themselves forgiving themselves for being young and not knowing what they're doing forgiving themselves for not loving themselves enough to ask for help somewhere forgiving themselves for you know living in a neighborhood where there wasn't sunshine anywhere and we need to do that because we're power. We're really that. That is the most em- empowering thing to let go, you know, of um, holding ourselves hostage to some transgression. When it's over and done with, we could do nothing about it. Um, That's one of the things we talk about in sort of the um, anarchist and sort of social justice analysis about. Um, systemic problems how we are told in our society in this individualistic culture that everything that goes wrong in our lives is our fault when Mm, in mm. reality there's all of these you know deeply systemic oppressions and like violent systems and that are a huge part if not the whole part of why people's lives are so hard and why things go wrong and sort of our idea is that without these systems of oppression, then people, these things, like, generally just wouldn't happen. And, like, the, we're never going to reach, like, a fully anarchist society. But the idea is to reach for one in which there is no oppression, right? We're reaching for something that has no hierarchies, no oppression. Everybody's equal. Mm-hmm. And then in that situation... Were that 100% true, then there would be that humans are basically good and that there would not be these, like, this, like, violence against each mm-hmm. other and against, and um, all this crime and all of these things, mm-hmm. you know. Now, people who grow up in a, in a difficult um, neighborhood that maybe they have, they're, they have, there's no, there aren't two parents in the home, there's not enough money. There's not enough medical care. There's not comfortable shoes. There's not, you know, greens and spinach and beets and carrots in the refrigerator. There's just, like, all fast food all the time. Uh, and a, a person grows up in that. It's very, All those things are very repressive. Where you take the exact same little baby. Just think, I think about this a lot. 
we're like this big. We're like a, most of us generally are 20 inches long. This little, innocent, totally glorious human being that I call the magical child. Just, they're magic. They're, they're ready to go, you know. They're ready to laugh and they have their own personality imprint. But by and large, here's the opportunity. And, and then they live with the oppression of not going to the pediatrician regularly, not the good food, not pa maybe two parents, and struggle all around. They don't see, you know, they don't get to see the sun. They don't get to see the farm. They don't get to see animals. And what do, you, what do we expect from someone that has no models of beauty, no models of grace, no models of compassion? We're going to get people who, who are just, you know, going to be in struggling all their life. They're going to be struggling all their life, trying to make it in the world. And I feel for that. I mean, I feel for this a lot. I have found that people dealing with the most oppressive systems and the most oppression and danger and problems are often the most compassionate and find the most beauty and find the most love of beauty um, perhaps because of its scarcity. That's you know? a really good point. That is a really good point because they're not surrounded with a bunch of things that, you know, take our mind off ourselves. I, and uh, I think we learn compassion lots of times by being hurt ourselves and that we know what that's like. And I don't have to have everybody's ills to have compassion for that person. I mean, my goodness, nobody could handle all that. But I've been hurt enough, disappointed enough, lied to enough to know what it feels to be desperate. And if you looked at me, you'd never think I had a desperate bone in my body. <laughs> I live in... To me, you know, in in abundance, um, but there's something to be gained. Um, just like the conversation we're having, that really calls out people for who they are and what they're doing. You know, my um, my um, teacher Matthew Fox. I remember the first day of class. And I was, I got my doctorate when I was 72. <laughs> yeah. So I remember he walks in and we're all adoring him because we read his books and everything. Never met him, but, you know, we love the way he thinks, creation, spirituality, and unity of all things. And he walks in and he very dramatically, just steps up to the podium and looks out at these 49 people gathered, all adults, and he says, you are all mystics. And I thought, what? <laughs> what is he talking about, you know? And, and 
to be a mystic is one who is connected to the ultimate whether you call it god or what it doesn't matter what you call it we but what the, the deity or i call it god but something's going on for sure <laughs> deep all this spinning around and um that he put us he said you know we are that i mean what an affirming thing to tell a room full of adults who have gone through a lot of things in their life. It was very empowering. Very, very. I've, I've found the idea of being a mystic to be very empowering. Um, sort of the same, there's, um, I've been really, really interested in the ties between mysticism and anarchism. Oh. That's um, sort of my focus at the moment and probably moving forward because I think it's fascinating yes. that there is a rich history of mysticism and anarchist or anarch, um, anarchic Spirit. societies um, because the basic idea is that egalitarianism oh, yes. is tied to power, both uh, divine power and political power. So anarchists believe that we all have the right to full direct democracy, that we all have the right to, and we do have the power over our own lives and how we direct our lives in our communities and being part of all of the decisions that affect us. So that's like the idea of political power being at the root, at the, at the base, at everybody having it. And then mm -hmm. the mystic is the same thing, saying that we all have our own right and our own connection to God, to, to mm -hmm. divinity, to mm -hmm. all these things. So when you look through and sort of like um, anthropology and all these things, the uh, most egalitarian societies often are also the most mystic, like most mystical, the most, like strongest sort of like. And I, I saw a really interesting thing, you know, like um, uh, Taoism, like Lao Tzu, right? Mm -hmm. It's seen as that book is seen as a mystic treatise, right? Talking about all these things, and then I saw. Um, because Brian Morris, he's an anarchist anthropologist who said that actually, I think he was saying that it's a political book about, as an anarchist political book about how we should run our political lives. And I read that and it's like, oh, it's both. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's the same, it's the same mm -hmm. thing, you know, not like one or the other. Um, well, then I'm an anarchist. <laughs> I mean, I never thought of myself as an anarchist, but I certainly am mm -hmm. under that definition. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, we're, as I say, we all start out with this with 20 inches here. And then we have all these attitudes and teachings laid over us. And we're little children and we just sop it up. What do we know? Mm -hmm. And parents are doing their best, but they're very misled and so forth and so on. I've found that um, magic is really important <laughs> in general. I feel like the same systems that oppress us politically and our systems that are trying to kill magic mm. and mm. suppress the mystic. Because if you're trying to suppress the political power, if you're trying to keep political power at the top away from the bottom, then you have to do the same thing for spiritual power, right? You yes. have to like, or like, yes. if not try and get it to the top, if you can't do that, then at least just like squash it at the bottom and just like kill it entirely. Right? 
there's work to be done. That's what Matthew Fox always said. There's work to be done. Mm, political, etc. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the, the things when he was still a priest, um, he was silenced for a year. The Pope silenced him for a year because he spoke about, out about things that you're speaking into. And you can't do that as a priest. And so he was silenced. He could not talk for a year. He could go, he could write, he could go out with his friends and be part of society, but he could not speak. That was the Pope said, that's shaking that finger. Well, we're gonna show you, we're gonna silence you for a year. So he was silenced for a year, and as Matthew would be, he would be perfectly fine if he could just keep writing another book <laughs> <laughs> and and be continue to be silent, um, continue to be himself. And then when the year was up, the first words out of his mouth were, "As I was saying." <laughs> That perfect. That's awesome. That's, that is very awesome. So it didn't. The Pope didn't get his way. He didn't. But it would quiet for a year. But he's ready to talk again. As I was saying, la la la. You know. That is very funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love. Um, I feel a lot sometimes like Quakers are like energy beings. Like you walk into the meeting house mm. during a meeting and you can just it's tangible that spirit energy you can feel mm. it like I feel like on like a really strong meeting day it's like you could scoop it up in your hands mm-hmm. you know what I mean yeah it's like how do we do that and there's no judgment I think I think that is what primarily not primarily but that is one of the things that gets people on their feet to speak that there's no judgment no matter you know how far out you're going uh, you're just going to be heard and as you know, in meeting, most of the time when we speak, no one speaks back to you. No one, no, that's, that's very rare when someone does that. So there's a lot of permission in that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we don't find very much in society or in the society of the family. Yeah, there are a lot of rules and regulations. Um, I, I think, I think. The work you're talking about here is very wonderful, darling. Thank you. I think you're doing wonderful work. I do it with all my new grandmas <laughs> <laughs> at the meeting. That's right. My goodness, lots of grandmas all, and all kinds of grandmas. All kinds of grandmas. Yeah, all kinds of grandmas. <laughs> I've been yeah. saying, I've been saying a lot that I think this revolution is being run by grandmas. Do you think so? I do think so. You look at, um, or, (laughs) yeah, I, you know, um, I studied the Serbian revolution. They, it was a really interesting revolution. The uh, Otpor uh, revolutionaries worked nonviolently and took down Milosevic in doing all sorts of interesting, in all sorts of interesting ways. And so I studied that. And one of the things that Sergei Popovic says is that they could not have done the revolution without their grandmas. Oh, because 
the grandmas were supportive and they made the soup and they kept all the young revolutionaries going. And Isn't that the like, truth? Yeah, and there's these like yeah. wonderful pictures of like these grandmas in these windows with the big Otpour fist yeah. like out yeah. the window and like you know you could at that time like that was a very dangerous thing to yeah. do. It was like yeah. but these grandmas did not care. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's very wonderful when people um, have an older woman in their life. I had a, a and I write about this in my book. Um, I would. I was. I worked at um, Ocean County College in Tom's River, New Jersey. It was my first job after being home for um, 23 years. And I went. I got this. To the grace of God, I mean, it's just a miracle. I got this job. It was part time. I never worked part time. I always worked full time because it was magnificent to be the director of a woman's program. This was in the 60s. The Gloria Steinem. The parades. The <laughs> you know, the, the everything. It mm-hmm. was a wild, wonderful time. And a lot of, and all the community colleges in New Jersey got these $5,000 grants to start a women's program. And they all did it in a different ways. But I, um, so I was hired by this wonderful woman, Judy Brown, who wrote the grant. And I was, as I said, $4,000 a year. And I hadn't worked hadn't just busy raising five children and ironing the dish towels you iron your dish towels i iron the dish towels wow my dish towels do not get ironed no my today (laughs) darling my dish towels do not get ironed and ironing my husband's underwear also (laughs) i kid you not that's what that was my life because i have a lot of energy so i i could have five children in an immaculate house because i am just i'm coordinated and disciplined and lots of energy thank you very much for whoever gave me that (laughs) <laughs> and so I tried out for this job, and miraculously I got it. And um, so this woman's program started, and I was doing a little program on a seminar on love. Now, where I got the nerve to give a seminar on love, which I knew nothing about love, I just knew we needed a seminar on love. <laughs> so I just stand up there and think, please, God, when I open my mouth, let something intelligent come out. <laughs> so I, that's how I did a lot. I was so busy. I didn't know time to study and all that. I just plowed in. And I think that's really true. So we, if we wait till we're ready, we might wait forever. You just have to jump in, you know. So I met this woman named Dorothea Page. She was at the love seminar. And we became very good friends and it is my very deep belief that young people, at the time I was 44, are still young compared to where I am now at 86, that young people find some elders that they can talk to, elders that they admire. I think young people are well served to kind of sit at the feet of the master. And that's how I view Dorothea. And all her old students, she was retired, all her old students, she taught English in high school, they used to all drive down the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey and sit at the feet of the master, you know, uh, because she had, she was rich, and she used to say to me, well, we do the best we can, don't we, dearie? And always heard that as such a compassionate forgiving allowing way 
So th I was knocking myself silly trying to do, you know, more than I could possibly accomplish. And she just calmed me down by saying, well, we just do the best we can, don't we, dearie? And that sounds so simple, but it's so wise. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we, we take on way too much. And we can't even do the best we can because we're overloaded. We don't get enough sleep and we don't eat properly and all the rest of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people right now, we work really hard. We have a lot going on. <laughs> um, and you also, if you don't take care of yourself you, and you burn out, that's not helpful. So It's so hard, though. I feel like a lot of times... Like we're told to take care of ourselves, or there's only so much we can do. It's like we need to be taken care of. Some, you know, it's like it's like people need to be taken care of, too. There's a lot of emphasis on self care. I think that's wise. Yeah. Very wise, because we we're not going to solve it all, even though the the, the world's a mess in a lot of ways. Um, Washington's a total mess in a lot of ways, and I'm I'm a big political person. I lo I follow the news, and you know I can sit there and just yell at the television and <laughs> I have a hard time uh, imagining you yelling oh my god you know, <laughs> I just think you know, I can't believe this is happening um, but you know it, it, you do I mean we always say we have to take care of ourselves first like you know if the plane is going down you put the oxygen mask on yourself before you yeah. put it on your child but that's a very good analogy of this we're not going to be helpful if we're dying on the vine. Yeah. You say with a sigh. <laughs> <laughs> Self-care is hard, Eileen. Self-care is hard, especially when you're busy. You know, sometimes if it comes down to, like, am I going to finish my work and eat chicken nuggets, or am I going to, like, take three hours and make a lasagna, you know? Like, yes. You know? And so I don't saying that every day you have to make the lasagna, but you have to have a couple of days to put aside. Yeah. You have to you have to be I think the the thing the clue here is to be conscious that I am running myself ragged. I am so tired. I I'm not even getting anything done. I'm kinda of going in circles. So I'm gonna take this day off. I, under, I understand what you're talking about. What do you do if you can't take a day off? Like, is there a way to, like, how do you manage, how do you manage that kind of, like, staying positive or with it or, like, well, you, you full could, of spirit you, if you, like, yeah. actually, like, can't, don't, like, you, literally don't have time? Would you, when you could, if you have a class, you don't, you don't take off the class, you go to the class. Mm-hmm. But then instead of, you know, writing something for your cause or interviewing somebody or <laughs> something, you, you take care of yourself. Yeah. And most people, I mean, I, I just think it's such a joke. People will say, well, get a massage. Most people don't have the money to get a massage. I think that, wouldn't it be great if we could all get us a massage? <laughs> that would be really great. Thank you. But that's not going to happen. That's, that's, for the, that's for the lucky few who can do that we all know about that mm -hmm. but just you know get a break some put it down that's the putting it down and picking it up 
Yeah. That's wisdom. Picking, knowing when to put it down. I better put this down. <laughs> you know, my father would have been eaten alive if he didn't put down yeah. that mental hospital. And if he felt guilty just because he had a bottle of beer, he would. if he felt guilty for that, he, my father had these women. My father loved women. And women loved my father because he listened. And most people don't listen. And in, in my generation, men particularly didn't listen. But listening <laughs> is hard. Mm-hmm. Listening is very hard. And he used to, um, these women in the Prudential Insurance Company, they all adored my father because he listened to them. And they'd tell him about their boyfriends or they thought they were getting old or, you know, just all the complaints they had and he would listen to them like, you know, as if you'd listen to the Pope or something. You're just like, this is a really important person. <laughs> and when he died, and it was such a great death because my father chose his death. That's how conscious my father was. Because he was found in his bed with a sheet pulled up to his shoulders, naked, sheet up to his shoulders, and by the side of his bed was a medical book open to the page on coronaries. And his his glasses were on top of that page. So as my father would do, he would be getting chest pains. He would take the medical book out and say, what's going on here? And he decided to just not contact his friends in the next apartment and get into the emergency room. Just put on his put his glasses on top of the book so we would understand what he was doing and he just let the process take over and he died. And I that's such a great story of letting yourself go. Really. But being kind enough, thoughtful enough to let us know that he he had a he had a choice there. He knew he was having a heart problem, and he had friends 10 yards down the hall in the apartment house, and he didn't choose to call them. He just chose to let the process take over. I'm so proud of him for that. I mean, that's one, that's, I'm the benefactor of that kind of thinking, of to be that conscious, to let yourself have this. Now, maybe if you're 20 years old, you, that's not something you do. But he was 65, and he was ready to go. He'd had enough. He'd had, had enough. How wonderful to know when you had enough. I think it's, it's beautiful to take control over something like that. It's so intimate. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there are societal rules a lot about things that are very intimate. Right. You know, very yeah. personal. Like that's a very that's a very personal choice and it and it you know, that carries down to all sorts of different things. Like we're talking about self care, it's like there are societally okay supposedly ways of doing self care and like not okay ways of doing self care and like it's mm-hmm. all seems very like rigid. Like you have to like you 
are supposed to take walks and drink kale shakes and yeah. <laughs> like you know yes. and just like yes. there's very there's specific like you do yoga there's just like very specific set of things that you are supposed to do and this is how you take care of yourself yes. and it's like well I don't know maybe in order for me to like get up and go today I need to just like smash something for a second <laughs> just like get mm-hmm. it out of my system mm-hmm. and then like go and then I can go and do work and be a normal person or whatever yeah. But, you know, I actually don't really do that, but, like, theoretically, like, people have, there are all lots of different ways of taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other that, like, maybe, like, don't fall within these, like, rigid societal rules. Yes. And, like, because you're telling the story about your father, it's like, that was him taking care of himself and taking care and of you. The way he wanted and to. the way that he wanted and, to. And taking care of me by his message. Yeah. And, yes. And then, but in a way that most, usually society would not, like, our society would not understand that. That's right. You know, and that's a loss. That's too bad. And I, I feel like sometimes I look, I don't know, I don't know if these stories are more hidden or just because of the way our media is or what, but it seems like people could be weirder. <laughs> like, I don't know. If bef- they like have a, permission to be weirder. Yeah, weird. or like, you know, yeah. in, in, cer- in certain ways. Yes, just like, be different. Be different. Like, you know, there were, like, if people were, I don't know, just like, I don't know exactly what I'm referring to but it just seems like in older stories and stuff it's just like there's a person on your block who is very quirky or strange in these ways but everybody knows them or nobody like it's not like a judgmental thing like oh they're just a crazy person up in there it's like oh they're just the quirky yes whatever you know I don't know. Have you seen stuff I've like seen, that change? Uh, what, what or the is thing, that, am I one of the up? things about the Quaker meeting is that there's a lot of permission mm-hmm. for that. I've noticed it's yeah. awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Mm-hmm. And like how many years I've sat there, and I don't know what people do for a living. I don't know, you know, if they're owning their house or they're renting their house or have, they have children or they don't have children. I, I don't know anything about these personal stories unless they tell me. Which a lot of times, well, we never tell those things in meeting. We might tend, in our afterward, we'll find out a little more about each other. Um, and that's fine. But there's, there's uh, the anonymity. The, you're just who you are sitting there in that silence. You're just who you are. And everybody thinks that's great. <laughs> everybody there's so many Quakers are so great they I are. I have often felt like kind of a weirdo like out of fish out of water yeah fish out of water a little bit not, yeah not a weirdo no fish not out, a weirdo fish, society yeah, would just, call it a weirdo and we don't want to fall into that trap right but yeah language is important you're right. right but that's it's right. also but it was sort of just like really refreshing that there were a lot of interesting personalities there and it didn't feel suppressed. Well, you know, know, I said to my son recently, I said, in that Quaker meeting, I'll tell you one thing. Don't judge a book by its cover. (laughs) You cannot tell by how a person looks or dresses or anything of who they are, what they've been through, what they've accomplished. They might have three PhDs for all we know and you know, they don't wear shoes. I mean, all kinds of people there. And I, I've learned a lot about that, of not having an opinion about somebody before I even know them. 
I, I'm kind of that way, but in my Quaker meeting, uh, that's that's really apparent. It's so refreshing. <laughs> like there's no comparisons. There's not who's doing it right, who's not doing it right. Maybe that kind of ties into the idea of no hierarchies, because if we're all we're all equal, like you don't have to compare and contrast and judge people yes. to see where you are in the like pecking order. If there is no pecking order, <laughs> there is no pecking order, right? And that's the truth. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. And it's a mere. It's it's just marvelous that they've set it up somehow that this works. That the, the heating bill gets paid and the carpenter <laughs> fixes the <laughs> creaky door and all these tasks get handled while we everybody nobody nobody has to know anything about you unless they tell you they want to tell you mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's rather special isn't it it's lovely it also feels like maybe i don't know if it's the like why because we're mystic specifically that just feels like our meetings are so full of poetry like some of those some of those vocal ministries are just so powerful and just so poetic and just um, so artistic and mm. lovely. And I don't know if that is just because of the particular people in our meeting or if it's because of how just the nature of being calm and unjudged in the spirit. And if that I is... think you put your finger on it. There's not judgment. And so your real self can pop up. And you might, you know, somebody that you'd never think was a poet... They stand up, and everything they say is really a poem. It's just a beautiful poem, and uh, <gasps> kind of takes your breath away. And it's <laughs> quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's quite, and it's so so. Isn't it interesting slash sad that Quakers are in the minority in society? Yeah, and that we're looked at. I don't know how we're looked at, but I, I don't, by society as a whole, I think they would look at our Quaker meeting house and just know that we're just sitting there in silence. Would they think that was weird or whatever and judge that way? I mean, it doesn't matter how old you are or what you look like or you're rich or poor. Or, I mean, I never think of those things when I'm there. You, Mm-mm. I mean, it really, really, it's utopian in that way. There's only the silence. That's right. Which is so thick and rich, so you don't and need all the other stuff. And it's very loud sometimes. It's silence. very loud sometimes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and anarchists are in the minority yeah. too. And I think oh, yes. it's, it's that same. It's the same mystic egalitarianism that is devalued and actively crushed in the sort of like hierarchical authoritarian type system that is dominant. I mean, look at the revolutionaries, the Revolutionary War and all these wonderful people that did great things. I mean, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry. I mean, they took great risks of their life to leave England and to establish themselves in this country where they didn't know where the next meal was coming from. And I always think of these m- women who had babies in these conditions and so cold in New England and everything. And um, I think they, 
they started out wanting what we're talking about. They wanted freedom from oppression that they felt in England. And somewhere along the line, it got very, you know, screwed up. <laughs> it got very screwed until you see what we have now. And I, I am a lover of our democracy. I'd be the first one to say that. And what our, our forefathers set up was just totally awesome, miraculous constitution, all of that. I mean, awesome when you think about it. I, I, I mean, I love that. I think there was some anarchic impulse um, yes. at the time, like at right then, it was sort of the beginning of the newer anarchist movement. You know, there's two f fields of thought on anarchy. The idea that there's a anarchy being throughout all of human history as sort of the egalitarian anarchic societies, and then there's the idea of anarchism, which is the um, political ideological set of thought and theory and everything that started in the um, 1800s. <coughs> But again, it, so it started um, at that time, it was like a very revolutionary time, and you can see these like little sort of, as opposed to the monarchy, these ideas that are anarchic in design of like, you shouldn't have somebody in power for any length of time. Right. The idea is like, in a lot of, um, we, we understand as anarchists that sometimes you do need a leader. Sometimes things need to go fast, but we, want, we always want to make sure that that person does not ever... Take over. Take over or have right. power for any length right. of time or have any art large amount of power ever. And that's so, like, that's the same idea of, like, having terms and making sure because the underlying I, the underlying thing there is that power is that's corruptive. Right. So there was that, that seed of understanding that power itself is corruptive, which is a way of an interesting, which was, I don't know at the time whether this is historically accurate, but that's, like, a... I, and it just other than the idea of a monarchy where power is like a good thing, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that power is corruptive and you have to make sure that it's kept away from people if possible. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting. And George Washington, and it, the idea was that w the president would serve two four-year terms. So George Washington did that, and he, w they wanted him to go another four years, and he didn't. And he said, you know, for all the reasons you're citing, that this is what is the right thing to do, that the president has this power and is the president only for eight years and doesn't continue on because then there's a possibility that it would be another, you know, an, another king, and they were getting away from that. So imagine, imagine setting all that up. I just, I just, I mean, I might have said that to you before. And I'm in, in awe of our founders. I'm in awe. And they're human. They made mistakes. I mean, George Washington had slaves, you know. And these were terrible things. Um, and then we had a civil war, and they don't have slaves. Although you can talk about that one, too. But we don't own people. Some ways we own people. We own their wallet. We own their credit card. 
Well, we, we do still have slavery. I mean, that's a form of slavery. But well, we have I mean, our choice not to run up credit cards. I meant, right? I meant moving back to the, having black people in slavery. Yes. Having, like, the 13th Amendment only ever said we only, you slave, having a slave, slaves are illegal unless you're a criminal. So our criminals are still slaves. So that's unfortunate, more than unfortunate, but, um, but we're running short on time. That's a sad space to end on. We've had so much, yes, <laughs> so yes. Much rich discussion about sort of like our meeting and the mysticism and the magic and all of these yes. these things I, I love talking to you about. Yes. I, I just, I just um, am very aware of what's going on in the world, and I also live in constant gratitude, constant gratitude, mm-hmm. you know, for the plant that keeps living. I just have to water it every 10 days, and it's this <laughs> miraculous thing. I just think, how in the world did that happen? And, yeah, it looks good. You know, it's gorgeous, this little thing, and now it's this stunning, you know, four-foot-wide plant. Yeah, it's and uh, it's just doing what it does. That's what plants do when you take care of them. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with people. We have to take care of ourselves, and, and we'll get to do what we're born to do, mm-hmm. is to have a voice and to love and be kind and generous and mm-hmm. and uh, to praise praise this life we've been given. Yeah. And yeah. not forget that. I love the spiritual practice of gratitude. Oh. That was kind of new to me. I didn't really do that until I started sort of a more serious spiritual practice. I think most people don't do that. But gratitude is yes. I do that all day long. I'm doing that. If you're, if so many things are going wrong, it, it can feel like how do you feel gratitude when everything is so terrible, but then it's like, but then how, how do you move on if you aren't in awe of the wonderful things about the universe, too, you know? Well, you know, that's why we have great people, and we have to praise them and support them in, in what they're trying to accomplish. When you find somebody that, you, you know, who is raising her family, I think Elizabeth Warren, you know, um, whatever you feel about her, I just think she's really <laughs> hot stuff. <laughs> you know, and she'll get up there and she'll just do this, and you know she has her she she has a voice, she's a person, she <laughs> has a voice, and she's you know what this country was really built on, and she's not going to let people get away with it. She's doing the best she can, it's all she can do. She's in Congress, yes, <sighs> and we'll see. We'll see. And the the way forward for our country is for each one of us to know that we are the magical child and we are precious. And each one of us makes this great thing called democracy. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things we don't know. We have no idea about so many things of what's going to happen. And Like who imagined that President Kennedy would be shot so early in his time, in his term, and then... Bobby Kennedy, I was, like, yesterday, I can remember that happening. Like, yesterday. And what happened in our country because of it, and the despair that we all felt, because 
they were wealthy. They were born into great wealth and privilege. You know, went to Harvard, and they didn't have to work three jobs to put themselves through Harvard. They had all of these uh, gifts that they just came into this particular family. And nonetheless, Bobby Kenny was out there, you know, working for people who had no voice and working but help them find their voice and and I just you know I just love that in somebody and he was shot right so we have to have courage this work takes courage also and we have to work with people who who feel like we're we feel who believe like we believe we have to find those people Otherwise, it could be despairing when there's so much work to be done. Matthew always said that. There's work to be done. The struggle continues. The struggle continues. And it probably always will continue. <laughs> I don't see it stopping anytime soon. <laughs> I don't see that. No, not in my lifetime. Not for sure. No utopia here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows what we're all in for? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. We're, we're planting seeds, though. We're planting seeds. Mm -hmm. And even if we blow the whole world up, there are these little amoebas and these little cells that are going to survive and start <laughs> the whole thing all over again. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Yeah, I loved it, too. Thank you yeah, thank for allowing you. me to speak about into these things. Well, thanks for sitting with me. Yeah. All right, this is Catherine, and this has been um, Friendly Anarchism. Thanks for listening.